Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no. The perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Gretchen-Williams slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. What the hell, what the hell? Which is, of course, American for goodness me, whatever's going on, old chap, I say. <laughs> um, on this day, in 1944, Mount Vesuvius started hurling volcanic stones up into the sky, causing bedlam at the airbase of 344th Bombardment Group, stationed a few miles away. The American crews quite literally hot-footed it undercover, only to return sometime later and find 80 of their B-25 bombers destroyed by hot ash. So Vesuvius doing better than Luftwaffe that week. Um, welcome to uh, We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and the podcast's very own Mount Vesuvius of Information, James Holland. <laughs> just uh, uh, spewing it out. Just, just spewing it out like, like so much lava. How, uh, how are you, my lava-pumping lava friend? How I'm fine, actually. I'm in, the, I'm in that kind of sort of state of kind of almost near excitement that I've nearly finished my book. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's this yeah, week, or you know, yeah, might just yeah. tickle into next, but you know, we're kind of yeah. 
the finishing finish. And I was actually thinking how I, I was sort of feeling rather smug. I was sort of thinking how clever I'd been, kind of you know working like a like a trooper all the way through um, through lockdown when I wouldn't have been able to do anything even if there hadn't been lockdown because I've got to do it. <laughs> and emerging into spring, you know, spring equinox, haven't we? We've just gone past that. Yeah. Waiting yeah. for my first chiff chaff to, in the in the hedgerows. Yeah, and you've been we've we've been vaccinated as well. The other side of spring <laughs> yeah, is to be vaccinated. That. You know, <laughs> um, Chalk Valley Cricket Club sponsored shirts with we have ways oh. of making you talk. They're about to arrive in the post this week. Ah, oh, wonderful! Well, you my know, two so. Cromwells are coming on very nicely. Oh, as well. Are they? So I'm doing them in a pair. I know. I think that's um, that's that's very strong, isn't it? Well, the thing is, the thing is, is if you've got to paint a lot of wheels, you might have. Might as well paint a lot of wheels. Was my was my feeling. <laughs> just, you know, there's ten wheels on each, so why not paint twenty wheels? Um, yeah. And I've been doing this thing of doing it for ten minutes and then leaving it all. You know, doing it in just ten minute phases. Have you at the end of every, at the end of a day? So just like yeah. a little bit here yeah. and there, and a bit like me doing Italian on Duolingo. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> ten minutes here, ten minutes there. One is a Polish one with the with the with the little howitzer really? on. You know, the build build builder busting gun oh, nice. that they put on the mark six yeah, yeah and then the other is a mark four which i think is going to be um uh seventh armored but i haven't decided nice. yet because because you have to drill the turret to fit stuff to the turret depending on which which one you're doing and then one might be winterized as well but i haven't decided yet oh this sounds quite complex yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, you know, you want to set a high yeah. bar, don't you? I mean, yeah, the absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, talking Vesuvius. I've got a fantastic photograph of some Spitfires flying over Vesuvius. Oh, really? Mm, which actually was mm. given to me by a guy called Dennis Bray. So we should put that in a picture. Right. Snap thousand words at some point. We ought to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the reason I the reason I've gone for a winterized Cromwell is because I'm fair on obsessed with Operation Veritable now, which we'll which I'm sure oh, we're going to talk about in a minute. Yes. Um, I'm just obsessed uh, oh, with that, that all, uh, you know, all that last phase of the war. God, it's amazing. That whole phase of the war, yeah, where where it's as as as, uh, the, as meat grinder is Normandy, you know. Um, if you're an infantryman, uh, anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm, thing, I'm, other, yeah, go on. In other news, have you watched any? Have you watched any good telly lately? Because I watched Lucy Worsley Smith of the Blitz this morning on my exercise bike. Holy cow! There's a, Holy they're describing the, they're describing the first raids on London, and there is a. Tiny snippet of footage of, I don't know, half a dozen Lancasters what, what? representing bombers. So, first of all, the Germans have got heavies. Secondly, they're Lanks. <laughs> Thirdly, they've got Roundels on. Fourthly, they've got H2S. How did they ever lose? Well, I mean, there's, there's I your myth of the Blitz. Well, you know what's happened, don't you? You know, that that's a young you know postgraduate. He's just come out. He's, he's, he's in the production company. They're in a hurry. They're, they're in a hurry. They're, they're on footage farm. That'll do. That's some bombers. Some smoke. Yeah. Lucy Worsley, she's Tudors, isn't she, really? Tudors and Victorians. <laughs> Regency. What get, is she, Jane Austen? Don't get me, what don't does get she know about the Blitz? The, don't get me started on the Tudors. Anyway, we hope you... Tudors, 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 Oh, no, not the Tudors. Um, uh, as, I hope you all enjoyed our latest edition of Family Stories this weekend, which I listened to it in a car wash yesterday as the car wash failed to remove the bird shit from my car, which once again proved... Just what a variety of extraordinary events people went through during the war. One story of a young German woman who arrived as a refugee, fleeing the Gestapo and ended up fitting engines on Spitfire. I thought you meant they were all story... getting shot on by birds. <laughs> that that story of her being taken for, for a flight over um, unbelievable, Berlin in a lank. Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. Really good. Do you want to come with us? Absolutely extraordinary, that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose they did do that. Yeah. I suppose that did happen. And then um, change her name to Geraldine. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Jerry. Um, I love it. Yeah, uh, Jerry. Yeah, Another included the quite brilliant tale of an northern lad who did six months of the glass house for half inching a quarter of a million cigarettes while yeah. serving in That was really funny. I mean, it was like, oh, I suppose my granddad did steal a little bit, but it was wartime and all that. It was like, steal a little bit? He's still a quarter of a million fags. <laughs> yeah, I, know. It, I mean, what I liked I mean, that, about that... That's though, quite was, serious theft, isn't it? That's quite serious theft. I mean, what I liked about that, that's the war unvarnished. You know, we're not, yeah. we're not just interested in... Um, you know, tales of daring do or or stiff upper lips. You know, there's a bloke absolutely helping himself. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, I I remember interviewing George Batts a very long time ago. You know, George Batts, who's associated with the Normandy Veterans Association, who was very instrumental in getting the new memorial put up. Right. George, wor- George worked on the Mulberry um, as a docker, you know, with the sappers as, as a docker, basically. Yeah. And he said that every now and again... Oh, no, yes, sorry, that consignment of silk pyjamas went in the sea, sir. Sorry about that. <laughs> and and he said they wore silk pyjamas from, from Normandy to the Baltic. <laughs> <laughs> New pair of silk pyjamas every week. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Well, and also, so I mean, that's the point that Keith Lowe makes in his book, isn't it? What's it called? The, the, yeah. the Fear and the Loathing or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, his book about kind of uh, post-war and how we all how we view the Second World War and his point is that you know they're not all heroes and not no. everyone was and you know there were some bad people and good people and how could they how they could they possibly all be heroes um yeah, uh, yeah anyway keep your family stories coming in we yeah they're, they're, really, they're fascinating aren't they yeah they are fascinating I love reading them and um yeah me too obviously it's a bottomless pit but 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 already the stuff we've touched on has been amazing so you can email them to we have ways podcast at gmail.com or leave them on the members' site under the Family Stories tab. Remember, it's patreon.com slash wehaveways. And if you are a patron, all sorts of um, added gravy, uh, audio books, um, discussion, um, a picture paints a thousand words where James and I talk about photos of the Second World War, and, of course, the live stream. Now, on the live stream last Thursday night, I started telling the story of the Bucks Battalion and their lost musical instruments. And since then, the colonel, my father, has been in touch and he's forwarded me an article. He basically said, you nearly got it right, Alistair. <laughs> right. He also, I know, uh, yeah, you know, he, he, I, I didn't realise he watched the live cast. Um, he's been on it, but I didn't know he watched it. And he's forwarded me an article by Captain Christopher Code for the Royal, Jean- Royal Green Jackets Regimental Magazine. They're the mm. rifles now, of course. Here are some extracts. First Buckinghamshire pa- Battalion of the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry was part of the BEF in 1940. In January 1940, the Bucks Battalion was billeted in the village of Wahagnes, which is pr- pronounced Walknees by the English soldiers. When the Germans invaded, the Bucks were redeployed to Harzerbrook to engage the German 8th Panzer Regiment as part of the Dunkirk rearguard. Prior to being de- redeployed, Corporal Stan Fowler, cornet player in the Bucks Battalion Regimental Band, asked his elderly French landlady if she could hide 13 musical instruments in her house, and she agreed. Only 210 of the Bucks Battalion got back to um, England, and on May the 28th, the Germans entered Warknees under the uh, command of Colonel Hocker Heinrich and executed 17 French civilians accusing them of resistance. The elderly French landlady's house was searched by the German troops, but she did not disclose the hiding place of the instruments, despite being threatened and charged as a collaborator with the British Army. Back in England, after Dunkirk, the Bucks Battalion was quickly reformed and a county subscription fund was set up to buy a replacement set of reconditioned silver band instruments. Now, we fast forward four years. On D-Day the 6th of June 1944, the Bucks Battalion and Stan Fowler landed back in France. In October, Stan went back to the village of Walkneys 
and knocked on the front door of his old billet. The delighted elderly French landlady welcomed him back into her house and she and her family ripped up the wooden floorboards of their cellar and gave him back the 13 instruments which were then returned to England. The rest of the instruments, hidden in another house, have been found by the Germans in 1940. At some time or other post-war, the fate of these instruments becomes unknown. Until 2014, when a brass trombone stamped Buck's Bat was handed into an office in Oxford. Captain Code adds as a postscript, the Bucks Battalion Dunkirk trombone today is secure in the 7th Battalion, the Rifles Weapons Armoury in the Ellsbury Drill Hall, still hidden away from the Hun! Exclamation mark. Isn't that story. brilliant? I just love it. Mm. Just so, that's... Th- th- that absolute granular... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tiny yeah, Because yeah. I suppose if you are running away, the last thing you want is, you know, is to... Don't is, forget is the trombone! Trom- <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, it's just not going to work, is it? No, but to go back for them, I wonder if we could still. You know, what a what a thing. Yeah, amazing. You know, absolutely brilliant. I wonder whether we can get the trombone on display at the We Have Ways Fest, Warstock, Warstonbury. Warstonbury. Well, uh, uh, well, we'll ask. We'll ask the rifles, I guess. We'll ask the um, uh, uh, if that can be done. And I know the. the the colonel, the colonel knows who to talk to um, about that, so we'll we'll ask him. He well, also... talking talking of talking of Cromwells, we'll have Cromwells at Warstock. Yeah, we will, won't we? Actual, yeah. uh, actual, the actual, actual real things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing is, we I talked about my grandfather on the live cast. Yes, yes. Um, because uh, we were talking about Greece. Mm. And, oh my uh, god! Yes, that's saying... amazing. Your, your links. So yeah, so my grandfather was director of, for the Balkans of the political warfare establishment. Um including Greece in the middle. So in the middle of the muddle around Greece, he accompanied Churchill to Athens when Churchill went to establish Archbishop Damaskinos as regent in an attempt to set up a working government. So that's, that's really when, good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because Churchill went, uh, uh, didn't he, went at Christmas in 44, didn't he, to, yeah. to go and talk to Damaskinos to try and set up something because mm-hmm. he wanted to. He wanted to keep the communists out, didn't he? He wanted to sort of establish something faintly democratic and set D- Damascus up as a regent. And then at the end of the war, went back and tried to tried to do a deal, and I don't think it worked out. But it turns out uh, Rafe was with my grandfather was was with that party, which is quite incredible. Amazing, really. That. He'd have probably met Alexander as well. I'm sure he did. Yeah, there is a picture of him dressed as a major when he wasn't in the army in Alexandria at some point in 1942. That doesn't doesn't seem to make any sense. But anyway, there, there well, we go. I've got to think about my, it. I'm long my, and hard about this this Greek project. I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you, do you don't know. If it, if it feels, I mean, you know, I'm interested in it. And obviously, if you're Greek, you're interested in it. But, but would know. you would you would you have to do Crete as well? Would you yeah. have to do the whole? The whole Greek campaign, or would it be like... Yeah, yeah be the history Greece, of Greece in the Second World War. So Greece is sorrow, Greek tragedy, basically. Greek tragedy, yeah, that's exactly Greek what you call tragedy. it. Yeah, you sent me last week, because we were talking, we've been talking about Operation Veritable a lot, and you sent me the, well, I mean, I, I love this, the post-match, again, post-match analysis report on Operation Veritable, yeah. restricted. <laughs> How you got your hands on this, James Holland, it's restricted. Um, uh, 8th February to 10th March 45, contents. And this is... Typed up by some doubtless in triplicate. This is what the army think happened in Veritable. The, so, th- so this is a twenty-first uh, Army Group post-operation report. And actually, I tell you where I got it. I got it from the Ike Skelton Military Archive, which is a digital library in the US, and it's just 
full of amazing documents that you can just download because I can't get to Q at the moment, you see. This is the most incredible document. Isn't it? It's just fascinating. It's fascinating because it's because it's all it's all split up very neatly into different sections. So you've got you've got part one is introduction, part two is um um is administration, which in itself, yep. you know, for, for, for lovers of the operational level is, is very exciting. Um, then you've got uh, part three is Just the outline, outline plan. plan. Yep. So great. Tells you what you want to know. Then part four is the narrative. So this is actually what happens on pretty much in a, uh, on not on a day to day basis, but in a kind of phase of three days. Phase, yep. uh, plus all the air attacks as well. And then part five, you've got conclusion. And that's a bit that's really, really fascinating. I think oh, it's, it, it's incredibly interesting because, because, and it, and it, this really comes to the thing we we've been talking about with this period of the war. I mean, the, the first point it makes is basically that this is an infantry battle, um, and no matter what um, help the infantry have. You know, in Veritable, the infantry had the advantage of very powerful support from the ground and the air. But in the last analysis, the operation was largely an infantry battle. And that's when people start getting killed. That, that, yep. that, that's that's that that's where you can't. That's where machine not flesh is only getting you so far. Yes. Is what that is what that sentence means. In well, spite the of next our sentence supre- is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. In it's, spite it's, of our. Yep. Yeah, exactly. In spite of our air supremacy, our superiority in artillery, armor and special equipments, the tenacity of the enemy and the difficulties of the terrain required that in the end, the battle should be fought out between the opposing infantry, frequently relying on their own weapons. And then, here we go. This was particularly, next point, one, four, three. This was particularly true of the fighting in the wooded areas of the towns. Of the clearing of the Reichswald, a battalion commander expressed the general view when he said, it was Spandau versus Bren the whole way through. Here, too, there were several instances and of the three enemy inch, being prepared. And three-inch mortar against three-inch well, mortar, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Not being prepared to stand when men, our men came in with the bayonet. Ooh, I mean, it... It's pretty close, it, this isn't is it? Inf- infantry fighting. To read it, an army group si- size report is very interesting as well. I've read battalion battle diaries before. I've read a lot of them and brigade reports and sometimes a bit of divisional stuff, but actually army group, which is, you know, the organ, the, the, all the organs of the army, it makes that point, you know... It, it divides the sections up into you know what the artillery requirement is, the sapper requirement, the the armoured requirement. You know, so you've got the full organism of the army on display rather than what's happening in an infantry division, haven't you? With this, that's what's so interesting. What's so yeah. interesting about this, and that its conclusion is that this is a this is an infantry battle, is all to, and it's all to do with the weather. It's all to do with the weather. It's all to do with the weather and the time of year. Yeah, it, it, it completely is. So I've just been doing. So I, I'm 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 on Operation Plunder at the moment, and they've got across the Rhine. Yeah. And the infantry have been pushed forward to try and get this bridge. There's there's a brace of bridges. So there's a, there's the R, the river R A A, and then yep. there's a spur immediately afterwards. And so one bridge goes over the river R, and then the next bridge, you know, a few hundred, you know, it's, it's a bit like um, Horsa and Pegasus Bridge. Yeah, you know, they're one after the other. Yeah, yeah. and the the infantry man, the infantry is supposed to be going in kind of sort of two in the morning at, at night and getting this, and then at Four o'clock in the morning, the armor's supposed to come up um, yeah. and give them the kind of fast support they need to create the bridgehead over, yeah. the, over the bridges. The ground's waterlogged, and there's lots and lots of mines everywhere, and the mine clearers are really struggling to get it, so the armor is late getting there. The guy I'm following is a guy called Peter Mellows. He's an A squadron of the Sherwood Rangers. He has to, he then just thinks, well, he can hear all this fighting going on up ahead. You know, he can fear yeah. the fighting for the infantry, and he just thinks, look, you know, we've got, we got to go and give these guys support. We've got to, we've got to do this. 
So he then walks, he then works out a route through the minefield, off the road, a detour, so that because the sappers are just taking too long to clear the roads. Yeah, and and, and because they're anti anti um, anti tank mines, they're, they're quite easy to see. So and it's, yeah. it's in a field, and it's a bit soggy and all that. So he's trying to work out where the ground is harder, so that tanks can go past it. When they get there, by the time they get there, instead of it being four o'clock, it's seven o'clock in the morning. And at five thirty, they were heavily counterattacked, and and the battalion headquarters was completely overrun, and they were counterattacked by a completely different angle they weren't expecting. The tanks come, finally, tanks they get there, and they go, okay, right, well we'll counterattack. They go back up, they they blast this farmhouse where the Germans have kind of sort of pulled back to, overrun it, and just in just like that, because they've now got yeah. fireflies and Germans and yeah, using yeah. them with everything machine guns need, or yeah. everything they need. Completely get the get the um the the, the battalion commander, his intelligence officer, adjutant, all the kind of you know. They're safe again. So they've been in that ca- captivity for about an hour and a half. They take 250 right. prisoners. But until they're there, the infantry have yeah. got to do all that themselves. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's beyond what they can do without taking huge numbers of casualties. That, what you've just described, 0.148 capital tanks in section 23. Yeah. It was hoped that after the initial break-in and again in the blockbuster operation, the opportunity would occur for a large-scale breakthrough by armour. Solely from the point of view of the quantity and quality of the German forces, this might have been possible, but the weather and ground made it impossible. Flooding and the extremely bad going confined movement to roads and tracks. These in turn became congested and did not stand up to the traffic. Well appreciating these facts, the enemy turned all hamlets, towns and centres of communications into strong points. These were made as tank-proof as possible by the construction of anti-tank ditches, the blowing of bridges, the cratering of roads. So this is, and and the weather is helping in this. These str- strong points have gave great depth to the enemy defences and could not be bypassed by armour, but had to be methodically reduced by the infantry. On occasions when the armour tried to advance independently, its losses were severe. So your breakout is impossible, and yeah. unless the unless you're the effective employment of armour was therefore confined to close support of the infantry. In this, it was the greatest assistance, both materially and morally. It was usually on the scale of a regiment of tanks to an infantry brigade or at least a squadron to a battalion. There it is. Mm. So you've got to, you, you've got to, that means you've got to be able to work with the infantry. And by now they they have figured this out, haven't they? The problem is, is getting the armour up. So yep. you may have worked this out by now, how to work together, but you can't, if you can't get your armour up, you can't, you can't get your armour up. And it goes on to say, flails are useless because of saturated ground. Yep. Uh, you know. They're always bogging it, down. It's exactly what we're talking about, about Garland yeah. Kirken. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? Because you, you know that all this campaign would have just been, it would just been over just like that if it had been high summer. You know, it is, it is because there is this, this, you know, and this is this, terrible balancing act that they're having to do which is get on with it and win the war as quickly as possible yeah but in the case of the british without too many casualties but yeah. those those can't quite be married together because you can't do it quickly as possible without getting casualties well unless unless what you decide to do is stop until march actually stop yeah um and and that gives the germans all sorts of opportunity to regroup and and all that sort of thing i mean obviously you could carry on with an air campaign i mean it's sort of like in a way it's kind of like a decision about japan isn't it in in the, the following year do you invade the homeland or do you stop and do it all you know by by sort of third dimensional means of blockade and bombing yeah and obviously no you've got to win this war here on the ground I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, this report, there's other, other really, I mean, uh, just before they get into the tanks, the advent of the armoured personnel carrier Kangaroo has given added strength to the infantry. It gives protection against shell and mortar fire in the early stages of the advance when soldiers on foot are highly vulnerable. Blah, 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 blah. It has been said 
that since the substitution of the musket for the crossbow, there's been no development in infantry equipment which is comparable to the arrival of the kangaroo. Yeah. I mean... Wow. Chef's kiss for the for the for the armored personnel carrier there. Yeah, yeah. This report though is absolutely it's boggling. It's it's quite brilliant. Um It really is. I I was particularly struck by I mean the fire plans are just amazing and all that detail yeah. of it, and you just think how complex yeah. it is and, and how effectively and the amount that they're sending in, you know, and it and it's sort of the depth of of the bombardment, the the complexity of the bombardment, the fact that they're using such a mixture of, of um, of shells, but also rockets as well. I mean, yeah. you know, this is wow. I mean, total rounds fired: seven thousand two hundred seventeen pounder Firefly rounds, nine thousand <laughs> seventy-five millimeter tank rounds, sixty-nine thousand three hundred sixty forty millimeter. You know, that's yeah. just on Pepper Pot. That is just on that that morning yeah. of the eighth of September. If people don't know, what is Pepper Pot? So Pepper Pot is um so what they did to augment the artillery plan before Veritable, they lined up a whole load of tanks. All the tanks they had available and used them in an artillery role, so they just elevated their barrels and just fired. Yeah. And and fired machine guns and just everything they could to uh, the enemy. It's sort of extra, extra, extra fire. Um uh, and you know, and the barrage finally ended. It started at kind of five in the morning or something, and it and it and it ended at, at half past ten when the infantry went forward. And they literally went out over the over the open ground, you know, disappeared behind the smoke, you know, just like the First World War. Because there is the no top. alternative, you know, you still need yeah. infantry have got to you know, the, taking the ground has to be done by the infantry in this particular instance. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's no kind of real alternative to it. Um, and yeah. so this was Pepper Pot. And, you know, and I was writing about it because, of course, the show Rangers were in it and stuff. And, and, you know, they reckon that in their troop alone, they're firing something like a thousand tons of of shells. And, do they, uh, and the battle report says that um, all accounts show that Pepper Pot justified the apparent heavy expenditure of ammunition and was a definite factor in the success of the general fire plan. Yeah. Well, the day one of, of, of Veritable went really, really well. You know, they yeah. they over, they swept past it. I and mean, also, when you look at the, the the detailed maps of all the German nasties there are on the on, you know, because it's obviously part of the seafood line, part of the West Wall. Yeah. You know, when you see all the defences they got, it's substantial. You know, it's wire mines, machine gun posts, you know, mortar pits, um, anti tank ditches, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it is really, it's just all over. Uh, I mean, I can yeah. I can tweet up a picture of it at some point, but I mean, it is, it's really pretty dense. Uh, but yeah. they sweep all that aside really, really quickly. It, yeah. it's, it's what does for them is not the enemy so much it's, it's the slowing up of speed it's exactly the same as, as what happens to Barbarossa it's suddenly you know when, yeah. when you can't manoeuvre because the weather's come in you know suddenly you know what you've got on offer isn't quite so special yeah. uh, and this is what's happening with, with Veritable that, that the initial thrust is completely overwhelming and blows the Germans aside but the, that problem of getting through the tracks, which are just getting rutted and rutted and rutted but yeah. through overuse, you know, and, and, and you know the Canadians start laying down log roads and things. I mean, yeah, you know, that's Pripyat Marsh's kind of territory, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 Siege yeah, yeah. of Leningrad stuff. I mean, it's fascinating. I thought the other thing that I thought was really, really interesting was the bit about the um, about the bombing. You know, I, I just I'm just trying to find it now. I mean, I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. So, so General Horrocks, who is commander of the swollen 30 Corps for this operation. He's got best part of 200,000 men, I think, under his command, yeah, yeah. you know, which is kind of sort yeah. of... It's army-sized, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he has to decide wh- whether to whether to send it, call in the heavy bombers. You know, that is... He's got that call if he wants it. Yeah. And, and the two towns at uh, the far side of the Reichswald are Cleve and Goch. 
and he's yep. got to decide whether to whether to hit them or not. And he just thinks, God, it's so near the end of the war, you know, infantry so tight, you know, manpower so tight, you know, I don't want to destroy these towns, but on the other hand, if that's going to help yep. save lives, then you know, with a heavy heart, I better do it. And so he calls them in, and you know, Cleve and Gok are absolutely flattened. I mean, yep. you know, at the time there is no other town that has been more of, of a similar size that is more flattened than Cleve. And yep. you also have to remember this is two weeks after Dresden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or two weeks before Dresden, rather. Or a week before Dresden. So this, this is the 7th, 8th. Yes, exactly a week yep. before Dresden. It's the night of the 7th, 8th of, of February. And they come over, you know, and everyone just says, why on earth would anyone think that's a good idea? I mean, you know, it's the infantry that got to pick through this, and it just makes their life awkward, yeah. because, you know, it yeah. causes rubble in the middle of the road, which then has to be cleared up, which means you've got to get up more yeah. vehicles which can't get through. Um, it provides the perfect places for Germans to hide and snipers to hide. It just makes everyone's life a misery. There's a section called To Bomb or Not To Bomb. Yes, I'm just trying to find that bit. Where for the infantry, From the infantryman's point of view, heavy bombing has every disadvantage and no advantage unless yeah. carried out immediately before his assault. Then air photographs uh, lose some of their value and the danger area for heavy bombs precludes the immediate rushing of the objectives as the last bomb falls. Craters and rubble preclude the use of tanks, crocodiles or wasps and make the evacuation of casualties even more difficult. It makes the drill of clearing through the back gardens impracticable and clearing houses from the top impossible. It also makes the enemy's task of hiding and camouflaging himself many times easier. His snipers always uh, uh, preclude the use of a bulldozer till very late in the operations. So don't the, the report says don't do it. But my point is... You know, it's not like there haven't been precedents here. You know, yeah. there's, there's a time and a place. I, I mean, I would argue that the bombing of, of the Bogobos Ridge was of benefit. Um, but, you know, the bombing of Con clearly isn't. The bombing of yep. Monte Cassino Town clearly isn't. The bombing yep. of Monte Cassino, the monastery, isn't. Yep. Um, <laughs> clearly, the bombing of Cleve isn't. So, at the point that, that Horrocks is making his decision, why hasn't someone already said, look, mate, you know, this is just not a good idea. It doesn't really work. It doesn't help us at all. I mean, what, well, I, I, I cannot understand maybe why there's that a hasn't feeling, happened. Maybe there's a, a feeling this will work. It'll work this time. <laughs> no. <sighs> yeah, but it's, it's just, definition it's, of it's madness crazy. stuff, though, isn't it? Yes, it's it's absolutely insane. It's really extraordinary. There's so much that's so good about the British Army by 1945. You know, there's yeah. there's so many aspects of it where they've really nailed it, and it's and it's not as if people are making decisions lightly, and it's not as if they're not analysing previous experience. They absolutely are. Which is why I find it so extraordinary that this particular decision gets yeah. through the net. I mean, you know, wh- why is it there is still a lingering belief that when push comes to shove, your infantry will be aimed, helped by by bringing over heavy bombers and flattening the town in front of them? I mean, I, I mean, Con is there as, as as the most recent example, yeah. isn't it, to to, yeah. to prove that? It yeah. just makes your life more complicated, not not. But better. maybe it, it's a role of the sort of desperate dice. But that we maybe you maybe the feeling is. You do this and the German. Well, after all, there is there is permanently this idea that the Germans, all you've got to do is kick the door in and they'll collapse and maybe that'll do it. You know, that that, that, that idea lingers, I suppose so. It? I suppose so. I mean, the other... And it's I mean, a it's shock and awe thing as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've just been, you know, I'm just doing this, this this attack on the town of Dinkspurlo in, in in which is just over the German border in northwest Holland. It is precisely the corridor that that they're yeah. they're now attacking at the end of March 1945, precisely the area that Montgomery was trying to get, you know, the back door that he was trying to get yeah. through by going through Arnhem. Yeah. Um and, and so Dinkspurlo is actually a Dinkspurlo 
is actually you can't really say it any other way can you Um, he's actually in Holland they don't bring any bombers or anything but the artillery pounds it and and Stanley Christopherson he's the commander of the Joe Rangers is really kind of feels very very uncomfortable about this you know this is a town we're supposed to be liberating not destroying yeah um, whereas the guys who've actually got to go through the infantry and the and the armor are really happy about it because you know if they can destroy buildings on which they there might be snipers and machine gun nests they're all for it jackpot yeah, yeah. and I suppose there's a difference between pulverizing a town by heavy bombers and hitting it with artillery shells I think I so guess. because because bombs are, are you know it's 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 craters and it's it's coming from yeah. the air it's coming directly from dropping from the sky whereas yeah. you're lobbing over a shell and you can direct it a, a bit more kind of accurately can't you. Uh, anyway. lots of food for thought anyway we have to take a brief break now and we'll be back after the break and we may even try to answer some of your questions this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course. Um, so we've been talking about Operation Veritable, um, trombones, uh, grease, um, much else beside. And, and I mean, this the thing is, it takes enough, the RAF take enough persuading to allow the heavies to be used um, uh, tactically, yes. strategically. Yep. Don't they? You know, that, that they're really, that, 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 that persuading Harris in the summer of 1944 takes some doing, doesn't it? He really has to have his arm twisted to, to let, let heavies do daylight stuff in support of Overlord, yep. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, before yeah. and after the invasion. Um, so maybe the feeling is, well, now we've got this thing, we better use it. Is well, I think, it I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of that, to be honest. I think there is. And I think also, you know, you're on the ground and you're thinking, well, as, a, as an individual infantryman, I'm very, very vulnerable. You know, the infantry have got to got to go forward and it's going to be horrible for them. But, you know, we've got this amazing arsenal of, of heavy bombers and... You know, surely that can pave the way. You know, how can anyone live through yeah. that? And of course, they do because they're all in cellars and, and and what have you. So I'm absolutely sure that that is the case. I mean, you know, people, you know, the infantry are still calling in fire support all the time, though, as well. I yeah. mean, you know, I'm just doing that. Literally, just before we were we started recording, I was just sort of finishing off an episode where there's a there's a they're moving north out of Dinkshperlo. And there's a, a roadblock and, and a recce tank, a, a steward is sent forward and gets knocked out. And they're trying to, they're not, yeah. and there's a crew, st- a crewman still in there. And they're not sure whether he's wounded or dead or carrying or what. They've got to try and get it, and it's blocking the road. Uh, and there's a whole load of nasties, you know, Panzerfaust, 20 millimeter um, light anti aircraft yeah. guns, which have been put into a ground roll, machine guns, all the rest of it. And they, anyway, eventually the, a, a troop of Shermans turns up, and, and also the infantry, which I think were the 7th Black Watch, and yeah. this lieutenant of the, of the recce recce troop talking to the uh the the, the major and his deputy's captain 
of the company of the Seventh Black Watch, and the and the major's got a DSO and MC on his shoulder, on his chest, and the other <laughs> one's got an MC and bar, and they go. <laughs> So where's this problem then? Uh, I suppose if I go and look at it then. And they have no weapons at all apart from a stick each. So they go what? off and get sort of shot up and everything. So they they, they all die for a ditch and manage to kind of sort of pull back. Yeah. And, and they go, okay, yeah, well, we probably do need the artillery on this one then. So they then sort of call up the Essex Yeomanry and their, and their sextons lay down a stonk yeah. and smoke screens and tanks go up, pace the whole bloody place. You know, yeah. that, get, that get rid of it. But by, by, by that point, half a day's gone. But it's interesting because Jack Holman, who is the commander of Sea Squadron, he says, The road then came under fire from two SPs to the south. The problem was how to extricate the honey tank and crew without loss of life. A honey being a British version of yes, a Stuart. Stuart yeah. Um, the troop of tanks under Lieutenant Cagney was brought up and Jack Holman and Stuart Hills came up in a honey tank to recce. At this point, things appeared most tricky. That's why it's such a joy reading these little kind of <laughs> <laughs> reports that are written. Right, well, should we answer, should we answer some questions anyway? We've got a couple yeah, we can of questions give it a go. here. Give it um, a go. Here, this is from Paul. Hello, a great deal of time is spent on the British, US, Russian and German activities during the war. But I've always been interested in learning what was going on in places like Romania, who are part of the Axis forces, but not really covered in most history books. Part of the reason I'm asking is that I'm currently living in Estonia. And as I was scrolling through my Facebook food, I saw a picture of an SS officer and some kind words from the poster. This led me to dig deeper as it was something you don't come across every day unless you're actively seeking out neo-Nazi groups and propaganda. It turns out that this poster, a former colleague here in Estonia, had a relative who fought for the Estland SS against the Russians. There have been numerous contentious clashes around Soviet and Estonian remembrance of World War II due to the parts of the population fighting on both sides and the subsequent occupation by the Soviets and deportation of many Estonians to Siberia. The post-war Soviet occupation has encouraged the narrative that these men were fighting for free Estonia and should be regarded as such. Contrary to that narrative is the fact that there are as many as 22 camps for Jews in Estonia as slave labour from other parts of Europe and up to 10,000 executions of Jews. So not a straightforward story of Estonians' participation in the war. What was life like in these countries? Were they occupied or were they just satellite members? Was the population conscripted or volunteers? What, what, what did they contribute to the war effort? And what were the Allies' disposition towards these countries? Well, wow, yeah, there's a, there's a can of worms. Crikey. Well, yes. Um, well, I mean, the thing is, is after all, Estonia was um, um, in '39 when the when the Russians when the Russians move east, uh, uh, west rather, into Poland. Estonia and Lithuania, and Latvia, all, all get they all get gobbled up, don't they? And uh, and are put given the Soviet treatment, um, which means you know their governments are stripped out, people are imprisoned, gulagged, um, people disappear. You're you're basically subjected to sort of Soviet colonization, aren't you? And, yep. and the embryonic beginning of Russification. So even before the Nazis come, after Barbarossa, you can see that there would be people, Estonian patriots, and this is where it all gets quite difficult, who would resist that, who wouldn't want that, and who would hate the Soviets. It's completely. So that's completely. You know, and the, uh, the, 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 what the Soviets do is they come in, and they collapse the existing state, and then overlay it with the, with their version, complete with the NKVD and everything. And then, well, it becomes the USSR, doesn't it? It becomes the USSR exactly. But then, what you get, it's a pr like a colonial, basically a province of the USSR. Then, what happens is the Germans come in, and the Soviets, having collapsed things once over, 
The, the Germans do it again. But obviously there are people who are anti-Soviet. This is the this is the complication. They're anti-Soviet for all sorts of really, well, well, really also, bloody good reasons. Well, also, don't forget there was a there was a war against the against the the, the Russians in nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which the Russians lost, of course. Yeah. And yes. um So there's some you know, and this is, going and on. And this there, is yeah. where General, you know, Phil Marshal Alexander fought. You know, he was commanding the Baltic yeah. Landsverk, commanding Germans who were fighting because yeah. that that Baltic Estonia, Latvia, um, uh, and all the rest of it were part of you know they were very germanic they were kind of you know german speaking most of them and all the rest of it it was very yeah. interesting i i had um I, I remember doing some work with a canadian crew and margus who was the sound recordist his father had fought in the ss and his uncle had fought for the red army and they were estonians God. Yeah, there it is. I mean, it, it, uh, we 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 spoke to David Badil the other day. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna appear on a Thursday at some point. Um, and in his uh, uh, challenging Holocaust denial program, I he, I can't remember whether it was whether it was Estonia he went to, but he, he went to one of the one of the countries in that part of the world where there was a a guy who's a this massive controversy about commemorating someone who's a a war hero to some, but also someone who signed off right. on uh, Jews being deported. For, for Holocaust purposes, the inevitable tension that exists, you know, p- post-Soviet occupation, but also pre-Soviet, you know, like the, 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 there were two Soviet occupations of, of, of Estonia after all. That's the first one. Then the then the Germans come through, kick them all out. And obviously this is, I mean, again, this is the, th- the thing that people often talk about with Barbarossa is had the Germans been able to sort of resolve themselves to Ukrainians within their racial ethnic worldview. They might have been able to recruit Ukraine to fight the Soviet Union, which after all had committed the Holodomor. That you, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's yeah. The, the, these sort of complications. But I think, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the what the what your contribution was to the war effort. If you're Estonian. Well, I, I mean, lots of people kept lots of people kept their head down, I imagine. I don't know. Well, one of the reasons why, you know, the Second World War is so enduring for us is because we, we feel there's a kind of sort of moral rightness yeah. behind uh, behind yeah. our crusade, you know, and, and yeah. Eisenhower's book is called Crusade in Europe. I mean, you know, it's um, uh, for, for very obvious reasons. I think that the problem with the Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe is that it's, you know, that moral certitude that we have is just very different and more complex in that part of the world. I mean, the best person who's written about all this, I think, is... is Well, you know, there's um, uh, Mazar, isn't there? Uh, he's very yeah. good on all that, but also yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. The, uh, Hitler's empire and stuff. But but the other person who's, who's just brilliant on all this is Tim Snyder. Yeah. yeah. Um, S-N-Y-D-E-R. And he wrote a book called Bloodlands and various other stuff. Bloodlands and Black Earth. Yeah, yeah, Black yeah. Earth, yeah. You know, they're, they're yeah. terrifically good. I mean, they're, boy, they're grim reading. But, but you know that it's just fascinating it's so murky it's so difficult and and the bottom line is is for an awful lot of people in the baltic states you have no choice really you, you know your choice is kind of sort of incredibly shit or or really really shit uh, and pff, what do you do i mean you know it, it, yes. it, it's it's do you go you know do you collaborate with the nazis against the soviet union or do you support the soviet union against the nazis i mean i mean what a choice because really there's yeah. much, the, yeah, it's quite hard to be neutral yeah, you can try and yeah. keep he, your head down. Good luck. Snyder you know. Snyder talks about um, what he calls grey saviors, that the people who would just help, if you know, would, would help Jews or whatever, yeah. but 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 not 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 expecting anything other. They're just helping them because they're helping people. You know, it's not a yes. it's not a political statement. It's just it's just that it's, a, it's doing, a humanity. It's just it's a, a, a it's simple just humanity. Decent. But the, but in the shadows and not and not 
not because they're mobilized or because they're politically motivated they're just doing the right they're just doing the right thing as best they can and and, and he talks that he talks quite a lot about that and how you know it, it, it god it's a while since i read black earth there's a bit about you know someone someone who's basically some jews who are fleeing and they're put up in someone's house and they don't know who these people are they don't know why they're doing yep. it and they're not there long and then they and they say goodbye and thank you and that and that's and that's sort of the extent of it but that becomes the, that becomes incredibly profoundly you know it's a profoundly important thing that people are doing but all under the radar and without attracting attention to yourself and and not resistance uh not explicit resistance and all that sort of thing i mean I, it, it it's um that but that that part of the world you've you've got this after all you've got this you had before this you had czarist oppression and churn and russian um uh, uh interference in in the baltic states anyway you know like this is this is to, to in a way to just look at the to just look at the war um is to come away from a long view where it's oh it's been life is pretty hard in those terms and certainly politically in that part of the world or or was or, or, or um certainly had a, a course of being so you know after all J- jews coming to the the, the to, to Britain in the late 19th century are fleeing pogroms in that part of the world, in, in Russia, aren't they? So, yeah. you know, that, that, that's where they, they're getting away from uh, from ethnic racial violence. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's just, it's so if you awful, long, it's if, you, if you long view it, you know, yeah. but, but obviously, but the war presents you, like you say, with this absolutely diabolical decision is like do i side with the nazis or do i side with the soviet so i mean that is you know if if you're trying to sort of pare it down that that is basically what it is and and yeah wow that's that's not a choice is it yeah i'm glad and you know we we have the luxury of i mean we we had to side with the soviet union didn't we that was our choice that we made in this country that after all a lot of people sort of you know uh, cough into their um uh uh, coffin. <clears throat> well, you know. <clears throat> well, of course, we had yeah. to <clears throat> help help start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know that, that that that's a thing that people like to elide. And this is um, I saw Dominic Sambert reviewing this book in the in the yes. Times Sunday Times this weekend. Yeah, Some American acad- the American academic going, oh, you know, Britain should have cut a deal with Hitler, or Britain should have stayed out and let Hitler and Stalin destroy each other. And you kind of think, all right, Lord Halifax. Yeah, that's just rubbish, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, there are no d- d- and the, the, what happens between the German state, the, the Hitler's. Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, they do a deal. It shows you can't do a deal with Hitler because he will renege it murderously and in an, in an entirely invadey style. He will go back yeah. on his word. You know, uh, it it's a, seems astonishingly naive, that um, point of view. But there you go. Well, it got, it, yeah. It got Rubbish. quite a shoeing and uh, Sambrook gave it quite a shoeing in the paper at the weekend. So there we go. Well, it sounds like it deserved it a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, should we uh, do another one? Why not? Well, we do one more. Should we do one more on Chindits? Yeah, go on. Um, Jamie McTrusty, who is a regular um, on here and a uh, boisterous Twitter presence um, on my feed, at least. Hello, gents. I'm thoroughly enjoying Al's reading of Chindit. That, by the way, is on the live cast. Uh, uh, not on the live cast, on the Patreon, where the live cast happens as well, um, where we've been doing an audio book. And it's a book by a guy called Richard Rhodes James, who was the signals officer in uh, 111 Brigade in the Indian Army and so knew everything that was going on. And he, he never he never sort of says that explicitly, but basically every message that that brigade got or sent went went through him. So he he knew exactly what was happening and why and what was happening higher <laughs> up and the discussions that were going on, because he does mention every now and again, you know, we the, the brigadier sending this sort of impassioned 
defence of the Chindit position because that's what starts to happen after Wingate dies is they not only do they have to pull off what they're trying to pull off they they have to justify their very existence um, yep. um uh, anyway he asks how effect it's a fantastic book it's very very interesting and the sort of psychology of marching in the heat all day the the how tea is this elixir for your 15 minute break in the morning and watching the other man's bit of equipment swinging in front of you as a way of getting the rhythm out of your marching in the jungle. It's incredible. How effective were Chindi op- Ops in terms of the effect on the Japanese in Burma? If only someone around here had written a book about Burma. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, James? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the first Chindi expedition didn't didn't entirely work in, in spring of 1943. And, and the second one in Spring of 1944 didn't entirely work either, and and what it did do is it tied up a hell of a lot of resources, aircraft and other well, well, resources. Well, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, tutorial on here. What do you, define work? To define not entirely. What were they trying to achieve? So the whole point the about objective? the Chinda expedition is to get behind the enemy lines and 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 um, and disrupt their supply lines. You know, which in itself is a is an incredibly sensible approach. Yeah. It's just that that it was done. The decision to go ahead with it was not a collaborative one. It was it was made higher up the chain, beyond the kind of decision making process of the army commander in in situ, who of course was Slim. He was commander of Fourteenth Army, and Slim yep. was not in favour of it. He just he said, "Look, it's not that I'm not against it. It's just you know maybe not on such a huge scale." And we're talking about kind of I think it was the best part of twenty thousand men were tied up in it, weren't they? It yep. was a division, effectively seventieth yep. division. Yep. Um, and huge amount of air power, which he knew he was going to need in his forthcoming battle around Infal. So he wasn't yeah. sort of massively big on it. The other thing that, but 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 in its favour, which is a kind of sort of slightly odd way of of, of looking at it, is that uh, Renin Mutaguchi, who is the commander of the Japanese Fifteenth Army in Burma, was very impressed by, uh, very struck by the First Chinda expedition, and he thought, "Hang on a minute." If the British can go behind enemy, you know, behind our lines, why can't we go behind their lines? We can do, and the kind of Burma Army Group uh, and back in Tokyo both said, right, you know, we're not going to go beyond Burma, we're not going to go into India. But Mutaguchi started looking at India and thinking, well, hang on a minute, if we if we can actually get into Imphal, take Imphal with its airfields, and then get up to Dimapur, then you're into the Brahmaputra, and then suddenly you're in at the back door of. Um, you know, it might be a it might be a river too far, but but yeah. you can get him through the back door. You can see where I'm heading yeah. with this, and, yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And, and and so he's sort of thinking, you know, if I can make it kind of 99% successful, I might actually be able to kind of get into India here. And <laughs> if we can get into India here, there is a the, the, you know the real threat is that once you get across the Brahmaputra, suddenly you're into Assam, and Assam is where all the airfields are for the hump, and the hump is the supply line, the flying the airline. Yeah. Um, feeding um, Chiang Kai-shek's um, nationalists yeah. in China, on which they are wholly dependent. So suddenly you've got this opportunity of cutting the the, um, the supply line to China and indeed getting into India, which, as everyone knows, was the jewel in the British Empire's crown um, with yeah. all its resources and, and manpower and all the rest of it. So suddenly if the, if the Japanese could do that, then the tide of the, of the war might be turned. And it is only because of the first Chindi expedition that he starts thinking in these terms and thinking this is possible. Yeah. Right. But as a result of that, 
he loses, overreaches himself. Uh, um, you know, Operation Hugo, as it becomes, is only is not even ninety percent successful. It's probably only about yeah yeah sixty percent successful, and um, and his entire army is completely destroyed, and that is the end of it. Um, and so it goes so, horribly badly wrong. So, in other words, it's one of the one of the byproducts of the unexpected byproducts of the law of unintended mm. unintended consequence byproducts of the first Chinese expedition is the destruction of the Japanese of Mutaguchi's army the next year. Well, yes, because if they hadn't <laughs> done that expedition, then Fifteenth Army would still be sat in Burma, and. Yeah. That means that the British would then be on the, you know, the 14th Army would then be the Anglo-Indian Army would still then be on the would be on the defensive, which means they'd have to yeah. go on the offensive to get in back into Burma, which would be a whole different, which is very very ball different. game, <laughs> you know, yeah. would be yeah. next to impossible. Yeah. yeah, but in their own terms, they're not <clears throat> effective, really. No, the, the Chindit operations and but victory in Burma and, is secured by the first Chindit expedition. Right. Okay. Well, I like. I like the. So basically, okay. So it's Eben M A L um, uh, results in Pegasus Bridge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, uh, but uh, I think. Uh, but I think the link is a little <laughs> is a little stronger than that one. To be fair. Well, no, I know. I think it's. I, it, it's interesting though because because the thing Rhodes James, because he, he's only on. It's a, it's only about the second expedition. He's not on the first expedition, and he's no. and he's. He talks very much about how you know I'm going to be a chindit like the previous chindit, but. The reputation of the first Chindit operation is a thing that Wingate's got a lot to, you know, he basically says in the first sort of chapter, Wingate has a lot of peddling to do about the first operation because everyone's heard what the what the sickness rate was and everyone knows that the wounded got left behind or killed, right? They know this. That, 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 that's the word on the street about being a Chindit. Is it, yes, it's like you're part of a select band and yes, you're special forces and yes, you're going to do something like new and radical in the world of war. But, however, the last expedition, everyone came back really, really ill. Those that got back came back really, really ill. Very high casualty rate. And they had to leave the wounded behind. Which, which, And that that is the bit where they, they all go, and Wingate's going, don't worry, you will not have to leave your wounded behind. That's That seems to be the absolute like deal yes. breaker. Yes, and there's an awful it, lot of it, cases it, of people kind of, you know, um, people getting wounded... And it's not, on the face of it, a life-threatening wound, but they're not going no. to survive because they can't carry them. Yeah, they can't get medical enough medical treatment to them. So, and the, the jungle, next and the jungle is, is uh, the yeah. jungle is a place where you get infected um, because of the filth and the yeah, heat yeah, yeah. and, the, uh, and so, the damp. Yeah. So they're saying, "I'm really sorry, Roger. I'm going to have to put a bullet in your head." And it goes, "Oh well, don't worry about it. I mean, I know these things have to be done." And they, and, you know, they're literally yeah. sort of shooting each other. Well, at the Blackpool battle, which is the sort of climactic battle for. Um, 111 brigade um they they get they get surrounded and um and the japanese overpower the the sort of stockade they've built um and they killed the mo's have to kill 19 of the wounded on their way out i mean it's it's awful it's yeah it's, it's, it's absolutely hideous and, 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 you just and, think, really? and it's the but it's also the interesting thing is it's, it's the thing wingate said that that won't happen. Don't you worry. That and it did. we won't be doing that again. And it did happen again. So on its own terms, um, the the second one it, it, on that intimate morale term that 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 Wingate is Wingate's offer to the second uh, and promise the second expedition. They fa it fails on those terms. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously in terms of the effect on the Japanese, I, 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 even then we we don't know because. 
because the battles at Kohima and Imphal are where the where the Japanese are, are broken, aren't they? Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, you know, an admin box where you yeah. bring where you end up bringing the Japanese to battle and fight them to a standstill. Because you're there in mass, whereas, of course, the thing the Chindits end up doing, they, when we've talked about this, that they end up being, it ends up being half a dozen blokes in the end, at the, the sharp end, rather than something yeah, yeah. Uh, more substantial. Well, what they do so brilliantly at, at Imphal is they do a fighting retreat. So they do a yeah. deliberate fighting retreat where they will attrit the enemy as they're retreating. And as they retreat, their supply lines get shorter and the enemies yeah. get longer. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. it's it's, it's amazing. It's sort of it's subverting everything that of military thinking up to that point. Yeah, yeah. But <sighs> having said all that, Rhodes James at the end of his book um, won't hear a word against Wingate and thinks he was a genius and is honoured to have been called a chindit. So anyway, it's well. I've done a wealth of spoilers there concerning that audio book, but it's very very good. Well, anyway, I'm, that was I'm, fun. I'm expecting my finished copy. My um, you know out of print copy I, to arrive any minute now. I've ordered my own copy of. Um, of uh, Otway's terribly boring book about um, the, the British Airborne War because I, I feel yeah. I need, I feel I need to read something really boring. You won't, you won't, you won't get through it. You won't. It's just impossible. <laughs> it's so boring, but I do. Need, you can't read it. You need to, there's some stuff I need to look at anyway. Well, that was lots of fun. We're back on Thursday morning, and of course, we're live streaming on Thursday night at eight thirty p.m. Uh, for more tales of trombones and and whatever, and also James <laughs> and I. Trying on a series of ridiculous accents. That means you can watch uh, and, and us And I do think we've also all... got John Buckley on coming on. Oh, have we got John on? Is yeah. he coming on Thursday? Yeah. Oh, magic. Fantastic. Yeah. That means, of course, you can watch us do this live on the internet and with Professor John Buckley, Monty's men, British Army, armour in Normandy and all that. Um, uh, fantastic. Um, we'll get, we'll just basically, we'll just set him off. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of fun, the live cast, and we, we hope to have fun for you in all sorts of ways. I mean, we'll, we'll have a drink and we'll, Start shouting rubbish at each other, I imagine. Anyway, we'll see you soon. Cheerio. <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs>